Hi guys, good morning, afternoon, night, evening, wherever you're listening to this episode, and welcome back to Teachable Psych. My name is Sarah Jane, your host, and joining us today is Dr. Karen Sumoto, who examines the intricate relations of race and racism to mental health, while investigating the effects of resistance and coping with racism, and exploring the complexity of relative and ascribed power along with intersectional discrimination. And I'm equally thrilled to introduce Dr. Grace Kim, who focuses on understanding how students perceive the meanings of diversity, effective methods for teaching diversity and social justice, and training future professionals to be more culturally humble and responsive. And now I can't wait for you guys to listen to this episode, and I'll see you at the end. I'm Karen Simoto. I'm a professor of psychology and Asian American studies at the University of Massachusetts, Boston. Hi, my name is Grace Kill. I am clinical social professor and chair of counseling psychology and applied human development department at um, Boston University. Thank you guys so much. Okay, so this is the first general question, so you can take it however you'd like. How do you think education is correlated and or associated with psychology? No, it was really funny when I saw that this was your first question. I thought, why you're talking to Grace and I, we just thought about this. <laughs> this is the whole thing, right? Uh, you know, uh, where do we start, right? I mean, education is um, completely intertwined with psychology. Like, more, good education relies on psychological principles. So it relies on, you know, understanding um, student perspective. It relies on kind of learning processes, which are part of psychology. It, you know, it relies on, uh, on kind of like understanding dynamics of groups as they unfold in the classroom. You know, um, I think, you know, Grace and I are particularly interested in the ways in which education about race and culture and social justice um, interacts with psychology. Um, I'm kind of like, you know, then in, in there, like, it's completely about psychology because kind of developing critical consciousness is a psychological change process. It's about, uh-huh. yeah. you know, it's about changing the way we see the world and we see ourselves to, to better align with, with values of justice. Yeah, I tend to think that everything is related to psychology. So that's a little bit of biased. the psychology. But education specifically, right, in particular, is so tied to uh, psychology in terms of, like, what motivates people to learn and for people to take risks, right? Uh, what, if they're having a hard time learning, what's uh, standing in the way? And a lot of it is psychological. Um, in terms of teaching, like what are some ways of teaching effectively is so much of it psychological. So, um, you know, as, as Karen was saying, as we're thinking about, uh, really contributing to and building a more just and equitable society, so much of it is psychological aspects about like, how do you unlearn something and, um, you know, deal with some of the challenges and difficult feelings that come when we are all learning 
um, some of the things that we've been taught, right? So I think all those things are related to psychology. It's hard to separate it. Now, what motivated you guys to pursue, pursue this field? I mean, I think what motivated me to become a psychologist is I was always like a why child. Like, why? Why? Why do people do that? Why did it happen? You know? So that, I think, was part of it. And then I think family meant all this. Um, so I think that's a major piece. Like, you know, try to understand uh, and then almost that was unfolding in my family and what was what that was about and the effect that it was having on me and kind of you know a certain amount of personal healing I think relates to that um, and then I think also um, you know I think the kind of the focus on education is is also a focus on on and on like li- the links of psychology and education I think it's related to the idea that education really is uh, how you make the world a better place, you know? Uh, and so there's a way in which I, education, psychology, and healing really connect very strongly, you know, and then connect as ways to to promote uh, healing related to justice and injustice. So, you know, like racism, you know, healing as a society, those kinds of things yeah so it's kind of hard to pull out like this is the one thing for psychology and this is the one thing you know so i guess it's no more to say well what is your specific area you know it would really be like the psychology of race racism and oppression and then resistance to that which then pulls in education right and so old old complicated right leave it out down no i feel very similarly um i went into psychology because I was always interested in people. Like, why do people do the things that they do? There must be a reason. Why do people keep repeating the things that they do, right? Um, I always love, like, people watching and, like, just observing people, you know, things like that. So initially, I think I began with this, like, somewhat general notion of I want to help people. And then later on, it became much more focused and, um, and that came actually um, from working at a psychiatric hospital that's very well known, but I did not see any very few um, Asian Americans and very few like just people of color in general. And I thought about, so like, I know that everyone, including Asian Americans have mental health challenges, but why aren't they coming to the hospital? Right, like where where are they going? Do they are they going anywhere? <laughs> right, like are they getting any help? So that really got me to think a lot about Asian American health, and also issues around um, identity development is something that I was very interested in. Um, so that's how I sort of got into psychology, especially focusing on Asian American um, related topics. Um, and over time, as I learned more about race and racism um, and the really detrimental impact of that, um, I really wanting to do something more about that has gotten me, you know, into social justice, education, research, you know, sort of learning more about it, hoping to contribute more to this healing process that Karen's talking about. So I think our pathways are 
kind of similar in that way. Your responses. So ever since you've joined or been aware, how do you think the field has grown in either a good or bad way? I think it's grown tremendously, um, especially in relation to issues um, around, you know, diversity, equity, um, and inclusion. And also, we still have so much work to do. So that's sort of my um, understanding of it. So um, just, you know, the areas of research and teaching and things like that, that's being done um, in colleges and universities. Um, and just the fact that, like, Canada and I both teaching Asian American psychology, things like that is amazing because I think what I was in in college as a psychology major, I didn't see anything like that. So I think that's sort of a testament to how much work has got in um, within psychology to really push for, um, you know, uh, more diversifying the curricula and diversifying research areas. Um, at the same time, the majority of the psychology workforce is still white European American. Um, and that's even more true um, in sort of for uh, service providing, so like counseling um, type uh, positions. So that still speaks to this huge disparity that if people want to seek mental health support, um, and if they are Asian Americans or people of color, most likely that they will see a white therapist, right? So. Cause that's just how the demographics uh, and statistics are. Um, so I think we're really working very hard to change that. So that's sort of my feeling. What do you think, Karen? So well, I think, I mean, just related to what you said rather than the original question, you know, I think it's one of the reasons why the education becomes so important because yes, if people of color are going to see white European American therapists, you want those white European American therapists to to at least be well-trained in terms of mm -hmm. being able to understand um, the experiences of people of color and not be um, not be afraid to talk about racism, not be microaggressive, so like those types of things. So in terms of like the field, the field has changed enormously. You know, I would just second what Grace said, although, you know, even more so, I've been in the field longer than Grace has. Um, so when I started, when I went to, to the graduate school, um, there was no requirement for any training in race or ethnicity or people of color or multicultural counseling or any of that. And, and I didn't get any, you know, um, uh, and I didn't get any of that training. So, so it's kind of interesting to be teaching it and to be so focused in it, you know, given that I, I really didn't have any of it in my own training and. You know, and so kind of going from that experience to, you know, to being able to kind of contribute to and work in a program that really focuses on social justice and activism and, and um, you know, racial justice is, is a huge change. Like, I don't think a program like mine are with in the particular way that it looks, you know, really would have existed when I started, you know, 
and, and actually, in fact, improving my kitchen started year I came to graduate school. So, um, but, I, and I think that the, the world has changed, right? My yeah, heart's generation, Sarah, is a different generation. You know, it, it's a, a generation that, that sees itself differently and, and, and demands a different kind of justice and is knowledgeable because of access, you know, to the internet and information that was much harder to access, um, before, you know, just being like, if you, you know, if you were gay or you were trans, you know, when I was growing up and you didn't happen to be in a city or, you know, um, run into something that had good services, then you were really, really isolated. Like, you know, you couldn't hop on the internet and say, oh, look, you know, and so your kind of idea of who you could be was very different. And that changes the world. And then that changes the field too, because like now students come into psychology, you know, particularly students of color or queer students or, you know, and, and, and they have a different expectation about how their experiences should be reflected. And I think that's great. Anyway, thank you. So I think it's changed a lot. And I think we've got a long ways to go because at the same time I see students come into my, my classes on race or, you know, like Asian American psychology. And I'll ask them, you know, like how many classes, what do you know about Asian Americans period? Right. And, and, or like, did you learn about what did you, my standard question is, what did you learn about Asian Americans? How many of you learned something about Asian Americans other than railroads um, and, and camps? And, you know, it's still the case that the majority have not learned really anything about Asian Americans in their K-12 education. And then when I ask them, how many of you have learned anything about Asian American from Asian Americans in your other psychology classes, I get the same kind of like, no answer. And that's, you know, it's not like there isn't something to be said in, in every psychology class, you know. Yeah, I think it's great that there's professors like you guys who get to teach these kind of courses. And like in high school or like even in middle school, there will be like counselors or like faculty saying like they're trying to get other students to understand, but it's very hard for them to, especially since we're developing at this age and we have already kind of our own opinions that are formed by our parents and peers. And it's very hard to change that mindset and to get them to understand where we're coming from. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Correlating with what you said about the white European uh, male therapist, do you guys ever get to do research with other professionals across the world? Yeah. I haven't done research uh, with other folks across the world. I've done some more kind of service type work um, with um, some folks in Korea. Uh, so... But Karen, you've done some research. Um, yeah, like I actually um in twenty nineteen twenty twenty, I I did a Fulbright fellowship in Sweden. Um and then COVID hit, which made it a very different experience. Um uh, but 
I, but from that, I developed a pretty close relationship with a colleague, um, Saika Osanami Tonjin, who is a Japanese immigrant to Sweden. Um, and, you know, we have maintained some connections and done writing together. And um, I've kind of been on an advisor on some of projects and um, and that has been really interesting to kind of see how how different uh, and she's not a psychologist um, but to see how different um, systems work and how different um, psychology is and how different race is and yeah I've learned so much just just from kind of like interacting with with folks um, with Saika and with also with with other people um, connected to research, which itself is an interdisciplinary, transnational, like multinational um, group of folks. Um, I think like compared to um, like Asian Americans here, there's even a difference compared to like uh, Asians that have immigrated to European countries or even South American. Yes, absolutely. So, and I think her experience is very is is different and has some similarities, you know. And I think um, there's a lot of differences that relate to like whether there's community there, whether there's a big community, how big is the community, and that also relates to like what the race through race discourse or dialogue is. Like in the U.S., that's it's kind of very framed by uh, the history of slavery. Uh, uh, indigenous colonization, you know, and in Sweden, um, and and particularly, you know, thinking about like indigenous people, yeah, thinking about indigenous lands that that people are on, and and the kind of um, color aspect, like black and brown people, you know, and so it kind of challenges the way you think about it because, like, the Sami people in Sweden are, are not brown, um, matter of fact, they're very very pale. You know, um, and so it just kind of like says, and yet they're, you know, they're colonized and oppressed and marginalized. And so it kind of makes you think about and learn about the structures differently. And then some things like you start to just see arising, like, like in Sweden, I was having dinner, at, you know, I was having dinner with someone and, and they were saying that, you know, Asian immigrants to Sweden are not a problem. Um, and I'm like, oh, well, what do you mean by that? And they're like, oh, well, you know, Sometimes the immigrant parents are a problem because, you know, they don't want their kids to assimilate. Right. And so, you know, they like block the kids from assimilating and becoming Swedish, you know, and then, but the kids, the kids aren't a problem. They're really hard. You know, even the parents aren't a problem. They're really hard workers. And so they're not really an issue. And so racism for, for, for Asians in Sweden is not an issue. So I was told. And I'm just thinking to myself, oh my goodness, like model minority, forever for it's like all of the stuff here is like playing out in that one little discussion and being framed as like not a problem. And I'm like, wow, that's so interesting, you know? And so, you know, it, there are ways in which Asian folks there are not seen in the same way as, as minorities and yet they're experiencing um, discrimination. I mean, it's, you know, this, it's similar dynamics, only different context. And the focus of assimilation too, I know, as you were talking about. Yes. Like how problematic that is. Yeah. Yeah. 
Yeah, there's a lot of focus out on, they don't call it assimilation. Oh. They, they call it, uh, they call it integration. Oh, interesting. Okay. <laughs> I did a research project on how model minorities, specifically Asian Americans, how their academic performance is affected by like other people's expectations of them, specifically like how well they do in school. I think that's really interesting how that doesn't necessarily apply the same way as it does in Sweden for them. Well, what did you hide? Well, that, so I obviously, it was just Asian Americans in general, but if I had a bigger applicant pool, I would have compared like across the different ethnicities right. within the race. But that like, yeah, it does affect them in a negative way. And especially now with like social media, it really uh, deteriorates their mental health now that like, this is necessarily have to be face to face just for them to. That's really interesting because there's a, uh, I remember reading some some research that, just that, the model minority myth also creates like, um, like problems with peers. Because absolutely, you know, because the, the, the teacher, consciously or not, plays out plays off Asian and and black kids. Right. Um, and then it just like feeds into this, you know, this cycle that is so much part of the ways that Asian Americans are used. Yeah. yeah. In my yeah. literature review, there is this article I found where they said how like um, when counselors are working with Asian American students in particular, the like if they're trying to recommend certain extracurriculars, they're more likely to say something academic like MAP or like Science Olympia versus other races where they'll do like. Uh, a sport or something else. Right. And those things have different meanings among uh, kids themselves too, right? So it's really interesting. Yeah. Absolutely. Grace, what's it like to work in Korea? Like, you know, like, like so it, yeah. So I wasn't in Korea, I was here. <laughs> so it was all like um, Zoom kind of feel of collaboration. Uh, and actually, I was really brought in by my colleagues in California who wanted to uh, for working with um, Korean folks. And that was soon after. There was a, a really tragedy, uh, I want to say, in 2021 or 2022 um, in Itaewon section of um, Seoul. But on Halloween day, there was a... Uh, uh, like a crowd control issue. There were so many people, so there was a stampede kind of accident and a lot of young people um, died. And so there was a trauma situation and they really wanted uh, a psychologist to be present to, you know, full space and also to provide some information about uh, what happens, you know, uh, what are the impacts of trauma and how can people recover from that and things like that. So. There were um, some spaces that we held, and there were folks who were in attendance in the U.S. and also in Korea. Um, and there was a, a, a reporter who covered the situation in Korea who was also um, there. So we kind of, you know, talked about what happened. And I, so I was providing a lot of psychoeducation about trauma and trauma response and how to be resilient during this time. So it was a really sad situation, actually, but 
does this act of coming together and listening to people's um, stories and their reactions and um, doing really kind of processing together. It, that itself was really helpful. So um, I did that. And then from there, um, some folks at a university wanted me to write a short article for their English newspaper. So I did that. And so so I've been kind of connecting in that way, um, using sort of my psychological knowledge to support people, especially in traumatic situations. So, yeah. Um, so I feel very uh, privileged in that way that, that I can be of, you know, service to people um, and to use my expertise in that way. So, yeah. So that's been my experience. Yeah. I'm glad you could help them. How long did you work on that? So it was kind of, you know, short stint and we didn't have any continued kind of, you know, project or things like that. But I think um, that's what people kind of wanted. Um, and so I was more, you know, supporting um, as what the what people expressed at each or at the time. I'm I'm curious where that cut question comes from. Like why 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 you ask that question? Are you particularly interested? Oh, uh, working globally. Yeah, yeah. I think it's very interesting how even like the same race, if they immigrate to different areas, there's obviously similarities, but there's also differences, and also they're obtaining possibly a different language that they add to their vernacular. And that could also change the way they view things compared to in the United States. I think it's very interesting to learn from other countries, especially their education system, and see where they have succeeded, whereas we might not have, and we can improve by learning from them. We found um, countries whose educational system is better at supporting uh, immigrants of different races and backgrounds? I haven't specifically researched that, but I know uh, like in the European countries where their like K through 12 schools were like their primary secondary, um, they focus heavily on like projects rather than homework as like collaboration is very important and that allows them to grow better as a person. Oh, okay. So structurally they're teaching in the one of the things that was really striking about Sweden during COVID is they didn't close their schools. That's go. They didn't close their their K eight schools ever, um, which is like completely different than what was happening here. You know, mm-hmm. which I think no breaks or like no, I mean like for COVID. Okay, yeah, that's what I mean. they didn't close it for COVID. So when COVID hit, they never like took kids out of school or put them on Zoom. You know, they put high school and college on Zoom, but not K eight. K through eight do have like a shorter edge of the span, so that's probably a reason. Yeah, I mean, because now you you know, there's a lot of stuff coming out about the both the psychological and you know psychological, the social, and the educational effects of having kind of taking kids out of school or putting putting K eight on, on Zoom. Yeah. You know? 
I just think it's so, you know, it's one of those things that, again, like what what we might, I mean, it's hard with COVID because you don't know, right? Like there's so much we didn't know, but you know, yeah. Well, well, so for many years, previous studies were mostly done on white males, making it not applicable to other races. Um, when you guys do research, do you ever think about how to diversify your applicant pool? Well, yeah. <laughs> Can we just can we just say yes and be not? <laughs> yeah. I mean, most of the research I do is not on white people; it's on people of color explicitly. Yes. Um, and so you know, I'm I'm looking to to diversify and to um to recruit folks from different backgrounds and um different racial minority or even very you know very specifically about doing a study on Asian Americans or that kind of. But yes, I mean, I, I teach about like, you know, diversifying your samples, why it's important to diversify your sample and what do we know and what do we don't know. And, and even like, you know, there's a bunch of articles that where they don't even tell you they're researching what the sample is. We don't even know with white folks, unless it's about white folks learning about <laughs> yeah. I am learning a lot of something. So, like, there's a study that um, I, I and um, a number of colleagues are developing, and this this is sort of therapist understanding of um, Asian American experiences. So that one, we expect that it will be it may be you know large portion of white um, therapists, but that's because um, the workforce is you know majority white. So um, yeah, so I think, like, I, I don't think I'm thinking a lot about just diversifying, but I'm thinking about whose experiences are centered, right? So I uh, am not as interested in centering white experience. So, like, there's never a comparison been in your white study that I kind of just go straight to people of color experiences, right? Or learn about the processes in which that, white folks are learning or unlearning things right so that's, that's probably my research it's, it's a really interesting question because i was like have i ever had white people? <laughs> 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 i was like oh yeah well i mean i've done research on on like white white ally development or i've been you know been research on like you know white racial consciousness yeah. middle school students and like yeah. how the students develop or you know and and so then it's like well yes but then it actually again it's like look what Grace said like looking at lots of these you know and meanings of being white you know I, I but I actually yeah I mean not since I started doing my own like you know I got out of graduate school and started doing more of my own research that's that's funny to think about <laughs> yeah. <laughs> So, have you guys have found research methods that can address how cultural responsiveness and racial justice can be developed through and integrated into education? Yes. Uh, I'm talking. <laughs> <laughs> a lot of on your answer right yet. Um, um, you know, I, I think, I think lots of different methods can be used for that. I mean, I mentioned a a, a study. Uh, that Catherine Tarman did, um, that I collaborated on, which was um, looking at middle school students' white racial consciousness. 
Um, and that was a qualitative interview study. So interviewing middle, middle school students and, and, and one piece of that finding was about, um, was about how education about diversity, about different kinds of people, about race and racism and privilege was part of their white racial consciousness development. Um, you know, on the other hand, I've done, uh, a quantitative study, um, looking like a, a, a pretty heavy quantitative study, like a, a study that looked at Asian American, the effect of Asian American studies on Asian American students' mental health. And that study was looking at like um, a pre, like, like we, cert- we surveyed, um, we gave scales to Asian American students. Um, at the beginning, before they took the class, and then after they took the class, um, to see if there was a difference, and then we also gave the same measures to uh, Asian American students who were not in the class. So we had a control group of other Asian American students who weren't taking Asian American studies to see if the change was, was you know, was due to the class. You know, um, so we were looking at like the effects of you know, um, Asian American studies on things like anxiety or depression and also on like colorblind racial attitudes and those types of things. So, um, our findings in that study were, uh, decrease in colorblind racial attitudes, which is what you would expect from, you know, research on race. Um, but also, and you know, this may seem like, oh, you know, the increase in anxiety um, but that's actually kind of to be expected because you've made students consciously aware about the ways that race and racism work. And I think one of the things that was really interesting to us as researchers is that before the class, there was this relationship, a significant relationship between um, racism and, um, i trying to remember, between a particular kind of racism those who historical racism and I think it was anxiety. Um, and so the, the two, you know, were correlated, right? So one varied with the other. And then after the class, they weren't anymore. So anxiety was still high, but it was no longer connected to racism. And that was really exciting to us because, you know, particularly in the area of socio-historical, because kind of the idea that you can now disconnect your own personal experience from understanding racism so that it's not like the more I I perceive this kind of racism, the more anxious I feel about who I am. It's like I can perceive it and realize it's not about me, that it's a problem with the system, you know. And so that was super exciting, you know. And that's a very different method than like an interview study, you know. Um, like that's really, you know, a, a, tradi- a very traditional quantitative analysis. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so I think uh, right. I was just gonna, I was just gonna say I, I want you to talk about collaborative auditory. Oh, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. So I was gonna say um, that because there's the issues about the methods and so how do you pick more inclusive methods and so forth. But also it's more about the questions. Okay, so what kind of questions are you asking? And based on the questions, you can select the methods. So even some of the methods might be more kind of traditional ones, but they could be really, really helpful um, to establish something that people may not think. Um, But I am partial to qualitative methodology because I think um, 
that just really opens up opportunities for less hard stories to be shared and to go really deep in it. So um, I've been sort of experimenting with a number of qualitative methods. And so the latest that I'm feeling very excited about is a method called collaborative autoethnography. So it's a combination of ethnography and an autobiography kind of um, combined. But it's not a single person thing. You'll have a group of people doing it together. So it's collaborative. Um, so um, uh, the latest study that um, I, I have completed with my students um, is uh, on racial trauma and um, coping, you know, resilience and resistance, um, especially around COVID-19. So um, for Asian American women. So what happened was that I was having research team meetings with this, you know, like group of students um, for PT students or postmaster students. And that was like, and there was a lot going on in the world and a lot of racism, anti-Asian racism. And we were just kind of like, how are you doing? And the checking in. And um, we found that that kind of check-in to be really helpful. So th as we kept on going, as the world was really terrible, <laughs> um, one of them said, can we do a study on this? I was like, oh, okay. <laughs> so so what, are, what could be some of the methods that can be utilized on this? So um, the really neat part about this is that the researchers are also participants, right? So uh, we are sharing our own individual stories, but when we have conversations about things, that also becomes part of a data set that you also analyze, right? So, uh, which sort of requires a lot of conversation and so forth. And I think what was really helpful for us was that the research process itself was a very healing process for us. And that because we felt like we're not necessarily getting support uh, from around us like all the time, uh, we were kind of like creating the space ourselves. Yeah, so it was really kind of supportive, um, you know, empowering, healing, and it was really interesting. We spent a lot of time trying to distinguish, like, so what is coping versus what is resistance? And it was like going back and forth, you know, because uh, some people would say that we do similar things for both, but then like there's something, you know, it's something more involved for resistance. So it just had a lot of really interesting conversations. One thing that I have to tell you is that my students were very sad that getting tattoos was an act of resistance. So they had to do a lot of explaining to me, like, I'm like how does that work? <laughs> so, so, and they, they kept on saying, like, we should get a tattoo face. Like, I, I don't like pain. So there was a lot of conversations. Oh, that which was also kind of fun as well. So, um, yeah. So I went with a little bit of methods, piece, but also kind of a research process and self care, community care kind of piece. All in there. I mean, I think method is interesting because I think uh -huh. when I think it's really shifting right now, it's one of those things that's changing. Like you were saying, how does it feel to change, right? Okay, at all. Because I think. You know, you know, method depends on question, but sometimes, you know, things like testimonial or like 
Like, what is this? This is the kind of epistemological questions, meaning like, how do we know what we know? Like, what is the basis of knowledge, right? And so there is as, this really, this aspect of like structured knowledge or, you know, structuring the way that we come to know and quote unquote collect data, right? Um, but I think there's also this like knowledge that is spiritual knowledge or knowledge that is lived experience knowledge or knowledge, you know, knowledge that is maybe, you know, not structured or, you know, quantified or bounded in particular ways. And, and so I think increasingly the field is coming to recognize that the very, very basis of kind of how we produce knowledge has been really Euro-American kind of male, white, and hegemonic in a particular way that has marginalized a lot of ways of knowing, right? And so I think that, you know, there are merging these these methods like, you know, collaborative autoethnography that are kind of trying to bring together different ways of knowing with some of the, the strengths of the more traditional structure. And I think there's like also just being able to step outside of that, you know, and say, no, let's let's bring analysis and and, and knowledge from other research and and um, and uh, experiences and facts and, and and theory into our own experiences, and that that too is a valid way of um, sharing understanding. So, well, I know Sarah, for example, that you interviewed our colleague Roxanne Donovan. Like we have, we have co-authored. It was co-authored for that we have Grace and I have on teaching. Um, but Roxanne and I have written a number, like a couple of things that are really about kind of like our own, you know, our own processes and kind of mm-hmm. ways in which we we can understand and bring other people understanding um, through our our own experiences, but also the ways in which experiences or my experiences are are different you know whether it's as a black woman and asian american woman and as you know two multiracial women which is actually a similarity or it's like an immigrant and a non-immigrant so you know i think that there is and i'm glad that there is increasing space in our field for the idea that um that limbed knowledge is important Oh, my next question was actually about you guys working with her because I didn't know you guys were. Uh, you didn't know we worked with her? Oh, I was. <laughs> I interviewed her, I think, almost at least a year and a half ago. Yeah. So, yeah. When you, when you reached her to me, I I kind of connected with Grace and Roxanne and said, Hey, what do you think about this? And Roxanne said, Oh, I've already done this. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Because the three of us had just finished writing these two books together. Mm-hmm. So, felt like we were joined at the hip. And now, <laughs> now we're slowly, slowly developing things. So, what are you guys talking about for the book? Um, in the books that we wrote together, mm-hmm. um, they're, they're, they're kind of a, a, a pair. Um, and one is, for students and one is for teachers. So the primer, uh, the primer is called Unraveling Assumptions, a primer for understanding oppression and privilege. And it is a, just that. It's kind of a, 
um, aimed at like high school, college student level and community to kind of understand power and privilege, uh, culture, and then how like gender and sexuality and social class and race and ethnicity and disability are all kind of created in as aspects of oppression. So that's mm-hmm. kind of thinking about like, what is the content of, of how we liberate our minds? Like, you know, what is the foundation and then faculty can build on that. Yeah. And then the other, the other book, which, the other book, right. <laughs> sure. So the other book is for uh, teachers who are um, teaching about race and culture. Uh, specifically, but I think also generally just um, get touch on those uh, topics. So it's called Teaching Diversity Relationally, um, Engaging Emotions and Embracing Possibilities. And this book, uh, we really want to bring in psychology um, into, you know, teaching. And especially uh, when you're teaching like really difficult topics like race and racism and things like that and all the other isms, for instance. Um, it's it's a very emotionally kind of um, challenging process, but often um, teachers are not really taught about how to handle those things, right? So people tend to ignore or kind of avoid going there, um, even though the emotions are really there, right? So we um, want to kind of provide our book as a resource for teachers to really think about how to fully engage um, people in their fullness with emotions and everything, um, and to really support folks and then also be able to empower students and also like take care of themselves as they're teaching. So in this book, what we do is we sort of think about what might be going on for like internally for individuals, but also what's going on interpersonally or at the group level. So there's a lot of group dynamics going on when cause teaching is with the public, right? So, um, when you have a class of people, there can be lots of things happening. And because people have different experiences, even if people might be teaching one thing, the way that it lands on people is very different. Um, so how can you work effectively with that? So that's a book um, that, you know, uh, we're hoping to provide them some around. And because it, it, these two books are written by three women faculty of color, um, we really focus a lot on like self-care for faculty of color um, in our books too. So, um, and really trying to bring psychology into education. Which yeah. is kind of funny that that was your first question. I was like, oh, well, that's right. <laughs> <laughs> because it was so much a full circle. Yeah, like how do we you know, it's so much about the psychological, the, the psychology theories that affect our teaching and affect students' mm. ability to take in the learning. Oh, yeah. I look forward to getting seeing that getting published. Oh, they're both out. Oh, they already are? Yeah, they, they are both available. <laughs> okay. So I'll... if you read them, if you read them, get back in touch with us. Let us know what you think. I know. We, we would love to have a, a student's perspective. Yeah, of course. <laughs> That sounds a very interesting and up my alley. Okay, and then for the last question, um, Grace, on your collaborative autophonography, how do you uh, compile oh, that? How do you compile that into a data set because it's so intricate and detailed? Yeah, so when I say data set, it's a qualitative data, right? So we have 
pages and pages of, you know, um, what we said, uh, you know, uh, transcribe and we analyze it, you know, following uh, qualitative data um, analysis methods. So, um, yeah, so they're not numbers, (laughs) they're words, you know, that we're trying to make sense um, of and then try to see if we can group them by theme and where they're watching come out of things and whether those um, particular things are connected or not. And we came up with a beautiful diagram to uh, kind of capture what we're talking about. So, yeah. How is that? So, well, thank you guys both so much for joining me today. I really appreciated talking with you. Thank you so much for having me. Hi guys, good morning, afternoon, night, evening, wherever you listen to this episode, and welcome back to Teachable Psych. My name is Sarah Jane, your host, and joining us today is Dr. Karen Sumoto, who examines the intricate relations of race and racism to mental health, while investigating the effects of resistance and coping with racism, and exploring the complexity of relative and ascribed power along with intersectional discrimination. And I'm equally thrilled to introduce Dr. Grace Kim, who focuses on understanding how students perceive the meanings of diversity, effective methods for teaching diversity and social justice, and training future professionals to be more culturally humble and responsive. And now I can't wait for you guys to listen to this episode, and I'll see you at the end.